0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vincent. I hadn't intended on Jonah and our study of Jonah falling in the same time frame as uh, the Advent season. Uh, It just happened to be that our discussion with spiritual gifts took longer than originally anticipated. And so we study the book of Jonah here during the Christmas season, but I think it's appropriate. I think we'll see the appropriateness of it the more we get into the book. Because there's a lot of comparison between Jonah and Jesus, and Jesus' first coming. And Jesus even takes the time to compare himself to Jonah and and draw some correlation there between their two ministries. And essentially we have God who sends Jonah as a precursor to his wrath. He says, wrath is going to come upon Nineveh. You go and warn them first. And, And we celebrate here at Christmas the fact that God said, wrath is coming upon this earth. I'm going to judge. I'm going to, uh, to bring recompense upon those who have disobeyed me. And he sends his son Christ as a precursor to that to warn us of that coming judgment. And so uh, the study of Jonah, I think, is going to be very appropriate for the Advent season because we have the idea of a coming in this book as we celebrate the coming of Jesus, the coming of Jonah to Nineveh. Uh, We're going to ultimately see as we study this book that Jesus is far better than Jonah. And we can be grateful and thankful that he is. And so I'm excited to start this study with you guys. It'll um, take us over the next uh, month probably as we work through this book together. And um, so I'm excited to hopefully challenge us to think deeper about the book of Jonah than just the fact that there was a man who was swallowed by a fish. Um, this is the uh, there's a much bigger purpose in why this book was written. There's a much bigger purpose for why this story is told. There's a much bigger purpose for why this uh, this book is included in our Old Testament canon. So I'm excited about exploring those reasons together. God, we're thankful that uh, you have given us your word this morning that we can read and study and comprehend together. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit that can teach us. The deep truths that you desire for us to know today, God, I pray that you would uh, take what is commonly seen as a a children's story uh, for children's church, Um, God, that you would take this story and illuminate it to us, help us to see um, the depth of of truth that's contained here. God, I pray that you would expose us to our own um, ugly hearts that may exist within us, and that, Father, you would radically change us change our perspectives god so that we are more in line with what you desire for us to be as new covenant believers we ask all these things in jesus name amen all right um as we begin this uh study of the book of jonah i think it's important for us to grasp some background information because for us to really have this story resonate with us as much as possible. It's necessary for us to understand everything that's going on in this story and some of the background information that sets the stage for this story. Okay, So, background information. Right off the bat, it's important to know that this story takes place near the time of Jeroboam II's rule in Israel. Now, at this point, the kingdom has been divided. We've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. This is after Solomon's death Um, we've got Rehoboam and Jeroboam that take over Um, this is Jeroboam the second he's a ruler of the northern kingdom the ten tribes of Israel Um, and it's during his reign that Israel is enjoying a time of prosperity now the Assyrian Empire is is in charge right now okay like they're in existence they're kind of conquering uh, surrounding areas uh, Nineveh is a prominent city in the Assyrian Empire. Uh, but during this time frame, Assyria is more occupied, more preoccupied with other enemies, and is not paying that much attention to Israel. So it allows Israel to experience a time of prosperity. Now, you may not be aware that Jonah is mentioned in another section of Scripture in the narrative sense in 2 Kings chapter 14. In 2 Kings chapter 14, starting in verse 23, it says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labohamath as far as the Sea of the Reba, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now what's kind of unique in that passage? What, what kind of jumps out to you there that maybe sounds a little off? Anything? Anything sound kind of controversial there that... Hey, why did it happen like that? Think about what happened there. We said that Jeroboam comes to reign as king. Is he a good king or a bad king? He's a bad king. Like, it says that he does evil in the sight of the Lord. He doesn't change the mistakes of his father and his grandfather. He does what's wrong. He does what's evil In the sight of the Lord. And it's because of this evil that Israel is even experiencing any type of oppression or distress. It says that God looks down and sees that their affliction is very bitter. And so God intervenes. It's not because they repent though, right? Like nobody gets right with God here. It says that the king's evil, the people are evil. But because God had determined not to blot out the name of Israel. It goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Covenant covenant theology, again, it's all through Scripture. We see covenant come out right here. This is significant, hopefully, to us as a church family, because we know what this is talking about. The reason he can't blot out Israel is because he has a covenant with Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation, and he's going to bless the world through Abraham. So it says, God determines not to blot out Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, who is evil and wicked. And he allows their borders to expand. He allows them to enjoy a time of prosperity, even in their wickedness and evil. And this is a fulfillment of a prophecy that comes from Jonah, who's a prophet at this time. So it says, in fulfillment of the prophecy that Jonah, and we know it's the same Jonah because it's the son of Amittai, who we read already previously in Jonah chapter 1. So it's important to understand the context here. Jonah is a prophet in Israel, and he is prophesying in Israel, prophesying good things for the children of Israel, and they are being fulfilled. Israel's enjoying a time of prosperity, even though they are wicked and evil. Nineveh and Assyria were the enemies of Israel during this time. So the Assyrian Empire, specifically the city of Nineveh, these guys are enemies of Israel. They are hated by the Israelites. Okay, so they're the rivals of Israel at this time. They're the threat to Israel and their prosperity. So it's important to understand some of the nationalistic perspective here in this story. Nineveh is the enemy. Assyria is the enemy. We hate these people because they threaten our security. They threaten our livelihood. And if you know much about the history of Assyria and Israel, Assyria ends up being a big bully to Israel. Israel has to end up paying taxes and tribute to Assyria to keep them off their backs. So there's oppression and and distress that comes from this empire, so they are a hated people by the Israelites. Nineveh was the largest city in the world at the time, and it's been around for a long time. It was founded by Nimrod back in Genesis. And it's located in modern-day Iraq today. So if we were to go to the setting of Nineveh, we would go to modern-day Iraq today. And that's where the city was located. It was a massive city with hanging gardens, water dams, parks. It had a 50-mile aqueduct system that ran from the mountains to get water to the city. There were great roads. It had a double wall of protection around the city. It had a large library, an extravagant palace, and it was a wicked city city sometimes i think in my mind growing up hearing the story of jonah i picture the city of nineveh as being just a little podunk town that that jonah was told to go witness to you know go share the gospel with hollandville go share the gospel with zebulun or go share the gospel with sharpsburg you know kind of a non-threatening just go do it and shut your mouth but this was the city of all cities at that time i mean this was a massive place where where people were coming to, it was central in the Assyrian Empire at that time. This is big implications for Jonah when he's commanded to go here. I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, can you go lead a revival in Hollandville or Sharpsburg or Turin? It's another thing to say, go lead a revival in New York City. Or go to Los Angeles and and lead a revival, and I want you to share the gospel with everybody there. It becomes a little bit more daunting of a task, a little bit more threatening, potentially, Uh, When we consider how big this city was, how influential this city was, now we've got to take that and put it in the context of it's in a hated environment. So it's not within our own country that we're supposed to go do this. It's in a foreign country. It's at a country that we're at war with. Their capital city in a sense is where Jonah is commanded to go and bring this message of judgment and a call to repentance. It's debated about who the king of Assyria was at this time. Um, some people speculate that it may have been Adad nariah the He uh, he reigned from 810 to 783 BC. There was also there's also some that believe that Assurdan the third, who ruled from 741 uh, or 754 to 741 BC. Um, the reason these two are kind of singled out is because of what's going on during this time frame. Uh, when the first guy that I mentioned to you was reigning, he instituted a very monotheistic religion in the city of Nineveh. Now, that has implications for the repentance that we see that takes place in the city. If the city's already thinking in a monotheistic standpoint, a one God perspective, they may be very open to hearing a message from one God. Some people speculate that maybe he was the king at the time, and that lends itself to why we see this massive repentance in this city because they were already thinking along the lines of one God. The other guy who ruled and reigned, he ruled during a time when a lot of catastrophes were going on in Nineveh. There was a plague in um, 765. There was an eclipse in 763, and a plague in 759. And this guy begins to reign. So if it's if the story's taking place during this time. You've got uh, apocalyptic type events happening that may have really opened this city up to the idea of judgment coming from a God on them. Uh, these these elements, these plagues and this eclipse, even though eclipses aren't threatening to us, we we stay up late maybe to try to see some of that, or we make time in our schedules to observe that from an astronomy standpoint. For them, it was a, a bad omen coming from the gods that uh, something bad was going to happen. So... We know from extra-biblical sources that these type of catastrophes were happening during this time frame. Uh, So it may be that Jonah comes to Nineveh during this guy's reign, and it may be that these catastrophes help lend support for why they are so willing to repent. We do know that the story is set in motion because of the sin of Nineveh. It's the sin of Nineveh that gets this whole thing started, uh, gets God coming to Jonah. Because God will no longer tolerate their sin. Back in Jonah chapter 1 verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. So God communicates that the sin is not against other nations, but it's against him. So we start to see an element of God's holiness here. That he will not tolerate sin forever. And that sin deserves punishment. It deserves judgment. But we see God's graciousness here in the fact that he doesn't just bring wrath upon this city. He communicates the coming wrath, just like he does with Sodom and Gomorrah. There's warnings that are sent. There's opportunity for repentance given to this city. So God is holy, but he's gracious. Let's don't just miss this fact that here's a story that we tell our kids about a man being swallowed by a fish. We see that this story is ultimately going to be about God. And it's about God right from the beginning. And we begin to learn and understand better who God is. And that's what the scriptures are. They're a revelation of God's attributes to us and the story that he wants to tell about himself to us. So let's don't think that this is just a story that gets thrown into the Bible because it's neat and it makes for a good story in children's church. This is a story that's ultimately about God and we understand who God is better from this story. So that's some of the background information that kind of sets the the tone for us. Jonah is a prophet. He's ministering in Israel. Israel is experiencing prosperity. They are in sin, but God has a covenant with them. He comes to Jonah and says, go preach repentance to the city of Nineveh. I will not tolerate their sin any longer. The author of the book of Jonah is Unknown. We've got two choices. We can either be content with unknown, or we can say that maybe Jonah wrote it later on in his life. Um, Jonah's painted pretty poorly in this book, and so it would take Jonah probably some time well after this happened to come to grips with how bad of a perspective he has in this book to actually write so negatively about himself. That's why some people would critique this and say Jonah could not have written this because Jonah would never have said such He never would have put himself in such bad light in the way this story is told. He may have written it, though, after the fact, after he's got a a proper perspective to keep people from having the same type of perspective. Or it may have been that somebody, through conversations with Jonah, uh, God used as an inspiration to pen this passage of Scripture for us. Uh, We're not given any details in Scripture beyond that as to who wrote it um the date we said is sometime within the 700s BC so sometime within that 100 years um most people would say this book uh, was written it's ultimately a story that points to Christ Matthew chapter 12 Jesus references this story for us In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 and 41, for just as Jonah, let's start in verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment when this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The scribes and the Pharisees, they cry out for a sign. We want a sign that you're really from God and that your message is true. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign, except I'll give you the same sign that the Ninevites got. Except you're going to have a greater form of that sign. In the same way that they had a man come to them who spent three days and three nights buried in the earth in the belly of a fish. I will be in the earth for 3 days and 3 nights. I will be I will be in this earth and I will be resurrected. But he kind of gives them an inclination as to how they're going to respond to this. He says, you're 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 not going to believe because at the day of judgment the people of Nineveh will condemn you because they believed and repented based on a far lesser sign. You guys are going to reject something that's far greater than Jonah. So I'm going to give you an even greater sign than these people got but you're going to reject it. So we see Jesus refer back to this story and use it as a, um, a correlation to what's going to happen with him. That he And we said this at the very beginning. He comes during this Advent season. Jesus came just like Jonah came. Jonah came to preach repentance before God's great wrath came upon that city. Jesus comes the first time at Christmas to preach repentance, to make salvation possible before God's great wrath comes at the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is greater than Jonah. The children of Israel reject that greater Jonah. Some facts about Jonah. It's part of the minor prophets. So Jonah's included in the minor prophets. Anybody know the difference between the minor prophets and the major prophets? What's the distinction between the two? Yeah, just length. Not necessarily importance, just length. So we've got 12 minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. The major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So Jonah falls in this list of minor prophets. If we're talking about um, from a standpoint of how well-known they are, then, then Jonah's definitely a major prophet. right? He's the best known of the minor prophets. His story is told more often uh, than any of the other minor prophets, uh, his ministry is probably better known in the church than any of the other minor prophets. It's also interesting to note that it's uh, this book, this story of Jonah, is one of the four most popular Old Testament themes in early Christian art. Anybody know the other three? No. Nope. Old Testament. we're talking Old Testament. Old Testament. Okay, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is one. Daniel in the lion's den is two. Nope. Nope. Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac. Those are the four major themes that we see in, in early Christian art in Jonah. Uh, Jonah and the whale is, uh, or Jonah and the fish. We'll we'll try to figure out which is correct. Um. The story of Jonah is one of the four most popular Old Testament themes in early Christian art. Um, There's some differences between this book and the other prophetic books, and I want to give those to you. Um, It's different than the other prophetic books in a couple different ways. One, it's mostly narrative and very little prophecy. Mostly narrative, and it's very little prophecy. In fact, there's only one oracle of prophecy contained in the book. It's about eight words, and it takes place in chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days, and none of us shall be overthrown. And that's really all we're told that he says. Um, I mean, he just kind of walks in and says, you got 40 days. I'm out of here. Um, I mean, that's, that's the extent of what we have of his prophecy. Now, you go back and read some of these other minor prophets, Amos, Obadiah, and I took a I took a minor prophets class in seminary, and it's really interesting to note that these prophets, and I didn't understand the minor prophets, and I still have a lot to learn about the minor prophets, but in that class I really began to understand that each one is a declaration of judgment against different nations. Like it's it's a declaration of, of of what God intends to do to other nations. Uh it's it's referred to as day of the Lord, like many days of the Lord, many um Events where God brings wrath upon people for their sin. So most of the minor prophets are prophets speaking these oracles of judgment against these nations. Jonah's different in the sense that it's story more than a containment of his prophecy against Nineveh. Secondly, instead of prophesying against a foreign nation from Israel, Jonah is sent to the nation. That's different than the other minor prophets. The other minor prophets are afforded the luxury of being able to stay at home and just say it from their doorstep and from their front porch. Here's what's going to happen to you guys. Does anybody hear me? Like, I'm not going to tell you about this. There was prophetic words that were spoken against these nations, but it was spoken from the comforts of Israel. If you were to do a study of the minor prophets, you would come to Jonah and say, whoa, this is different. Like Jonah is actually being sent to this city. He's not just being told to prophesy over them from Israel. He's being sent to them. It's also different in that most prophetic literature shows the man of God in a positive light and how the divine oracles are fulfilled. So most prophetic books show the man of God, the prophet, in a positive light, and it shows how the oracles are fulfilled. Jonah shows the man of God in a negative light, and how the oracles are not fulfilled. That's a break in the norm for these minor prophets. Jonah is seen to be um, less than admirable, not the type of example we would want to follow, whereas the other minor prophets are shown in a much more positive light. The other minor prophets, their prophecies come true. They they preach judgment and judgment comes. Jonah preaches judgment and judgment does not come. Right. Number four, the historical accuracy of the book is debated. Is it allegory? Is it parable? Or is it historical narrative? Now, What are some of the elements of this story that would give critics ammunition for saying, no way this story happened. No way this is real. What are some things that you came up with? Okay, so yeah. The, the the speed of repentance by this city seems very outlandish, especially when the prophetic judgment is coming from a foreigner. I mean, this guy comes from another country, another nation, who worships another god, comes into this city and tells them they need to change or God's going to show up and judge them. It seems outlandish to think that they would repent that quickly when when a foreigner comes in and says this now if one of their own prophets rose up and said hey our god has given me this message we need to do this then that would make a little bit more sense but for somebody to come from another nation who worships another god to come into our city and say this and for a whole city to react this way it seems very outlandish and maybe hard to believe what else other elements that that critics would point to and say no way this story's real. Right, yeah, that's a, that's another good point. The fact that this plant now, I've seen some plants spring up pretty quick in my backyard, especially after I go out there and cut the grass and try to clean it up, and then we get a downpour of rain, and the next day it seems like mushrooms can grow like in in two minutes. I mean, they're just – they can be all over the place. Vines and, and thistles and thorns seem to grow up everywhere really fast, but but never in the sense that I could go out and say, whew, this is nice and shady under here for me to, to be able to sit underneath this. Um, so, so yeah, critics would say there's no way that a plant could grow this fast to where Jonah could be under it and could experience the shade of it overnight. What else? Okay. Yeah, the fact that the storm can come and go uh, so quickly um, is another aspect of this story that seems unbelievable. Okay, yeah, Jonah's response to the whole thing seems a little bit more calm um, than maybe we would expect it to be. Yeah, we read it as, where do you come from? But maybe it was, where do you come from? Like... We could probably read it differently to to get the feel of of what's going on. Anything else that seems a little a little odd? Okay. Yeah, the aspect of him getting out of the fish is a little odd as well, especially if you see like storybooks and flannel graphs and stuff. I mean, you you really have like this fish that's like beached on the on the shore and like. There's vomit everywhere, and then there's like a gross-looking man, like on the beach too. Um, so that can be a little odd, um, right? Yeah. Any other any other things that we read that seem a little off? Okay. Okay. Probably didn't, yeah. The sun the sun was beating down pretty good. I, I heard some people mention the fact that the city, the size of the city is talked about um in a in a way that seems a little outlandish too that it would take 3 days to walk through the city. I mean, that's a pretty massive city because if you're booking it, I mean, we can walk, you know, good links, good distance in a day. Much less 3 days. So um, how do we get around, or what do we do with the fact that it supposedly takes three days to walk through this city? So there's some fable-type qualities to this story that might would lend itself to parable or allegory. We've got the great storm. Uh, I heard some other people mentioning the fact that just the, the whole lot-casting scenario where it actually falls on Jonah, and they don't throw the wrong person into the ocean, that they actually get it right. Um, We've got the the whole aspect of the fish, the size of Nineveh, the speed of repentance, the growing vine, uh, even the east wind that's mentioned that helps contribute to the heat that he experiences. All this stuff critics want to point to as reasons to to not believe this story really happened. Uh, There's some realistic narrative qualities to this story, though, as well. The length of the story is far different than other parables that we have. The um, the details of the story are different than most of the parables that Jesus told. Um, the fact that real cities are mentioned and real names and the story is set in a real time of history uh, is, is contradictory towards allegories and parables that we're familiar with. So there's some realistic narrative qualities that give us reason to believe that this story really did happen as well. Uh, the major... Reason for not seeing this story as historical. So there's a a lot of arguments for why this story didn't happen, but the major reason why this topic even comes up is a lack of belief in miracles. So the critics that want to deter us from thinking that this story really happened, it's really rooted and based in believing that miracles do not happen this way. The major support for seeing this story as historical is the way Jesus treats it. In Scripture, in Matthew, as we've already read, the fact that Jesus refers to this and uses it as an example, uses it as an indictment against the people that he's preaching to, it seems odd that he would refer to a fairy tale type story to bring judgment upon the Pharisees and scribes that are listening to him. So Jesus seems to refer to it as a historical account. He does something very similar with another historical account in John three fourteen. When he's talking to who? Anybody remember who he talks to in John 3? Nicodemus. He says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's a real story, right? Jesus refers to an Old Testament account. He draws on the parallels there that in the same way that Moses held up the serpent so that people could find relief from the bites of the serpents, He, too, will be lifted up so that people can find relief from their sin. Paul does something very similar in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. uh, "'For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea.'" All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Paul's drawing on spiritual truths that come from the wandering in the wilderness, historically accurate stories from the Old Testament. So we see examples of this in the New Testament, so we can uh, potentially logically conclude that Jesus is doing the same thing here when he refers to the account of Jonah and says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, I'm going to be in the earth. I'm going to be resurrected. You're going to be held accountable for the Ninevites' repentance because you did not repent. Um, so that's the major support for seeing this um, this account as historical. Why people see the story as allegorical, where everything means something. So some people want to say that this story is about Israel represented in Jonah and their disobedience and their captivity in Babylon. And so the whale or the fish represents babylon and so they spend time engulfed in babylon in captivity because they're a failure to be a light to the nations people like nineveh So some people want to allegorize everything in the story and give everything some type of symbolic meaning we said the parable perspective is that it's such a fable to teach one single point we talked about the extraordinary acts of creation god controls creation and works miracles throughout scripture so we should not let the The outlandish type things in this story give us doubt as to whether this could happen or not. God's in control of creation. If God wants to raise up a plant in a night to give shade, then he can do so. (coughs) The massive repentance of the city based on the message of an unknown foreigner. We already said that Assyria may have experienced turbulent type warnings that may have opened them up to the idea of repentance. We We do know that the empire rebounds after this. And experiences some of the best times moving forward before ultimate judgment eventually falls on Nineveh. Um, How do we explain such a massive repentance? I think it's important to note that God was pretty persistent in sending Jonah because he knew that his message would be made effective. God knows what he's intending to do in this city. He's very intentional about making sure the message gets there. So we can see leading up to this that God is expecting, God knows because he's in control, he's expecting repentance to happen. He's expecting uh, the judgment to be withheld for a time because of the people's reactions to this message. I think it's important, too, that we ought not limit the Holy Spirit in bringing men under conviction. And I'm guilty of this far too often when I hear about repentance happening, especially on a massive scale. You know, we had a hundred people saved in our church service last night. My first thought is, probably not. Like that seems crazy. A hundred people. <clears throat> but we should not limit the Holy Spirit. We talked, you know, in our spiritual gifts, we don't want to limit the Holy Spirit in the area of, of some of these miraculous giftings. Let's definitely don't be guilty of limiting the Holy Spirit when it comes to conviction and salvation, an area that we definitely know the Holy Spirit is still working in today. And I think it's important to add to that. We ought not limit the Holy Spirit in bringing men under conviction when truth is preached. That's the key element, when truth is preached. Now, typically when somebody tells me, you know, hey, we had 150 people or 100, 200, 300, people saved at our service last night. Typically, I want to start critiquing the response. Well, how do you know they were saved? What did you guys do? Are you going to follow up with them? Did you just get cards? Did you just pronounce them? Say What did? You... What I really need to be saying is, hey, what was the message that was preached? Was the gospel preached? Because if the gospel was preached, then it ought to give validity to, hey, There's a real good possibility that a 1,000 people got saved last night because truth was presented. I think when we hear stories of massive conviction and massive conversion, too often we want to critique the response and try to evaluate, is this real, is it not real? When we need to immediately look and see, was truth presented? Was the gospel shared? And if the gospel was shared, it can give us confidence that, yes, the Holy Spirit still brings conviction today, And so we can believe in this story that that, that change happens within this city because we know Jonah is sent with a message from God. So we need not doubt the validity of this story because so many people seem to repent here. This is what the Holy Spirit does. This is what truth is supposed to do. So when it happens, we shouldn't be awed at it and we shouldn't be doubtful about it. We should be rejoicing over it. So I don't think that we should use this as an element of critique to the story. We should use it as an example that we should not constantly be critiquing maybe other things that we hear. Again, there are times when these type of things happen and we hear these type of stories presented to us. And when we do a little bit of investigating, we find out that probably the gospel was not presented. That there was manipulation that happened. that, that, That it's coming from a church that maybe doesn't believe in Christ the way that they should based on Scripture's revelation. So those type of things, I think we should doubt those massive type conversions. But when we know that gospel is being presented, I think we need to give the Holy Spirit credit for the ability to bring massive type conversions uh, and repentance. Um, the size description of Nineveh talks about the three day journey. This may—we're not told exactly what all is involved in this three day journey. It may have included the time spent preaching. I told you we were only given a small glimpse of the, uh, the message that Jonah brings. Uh, we're not told that he didn't potentially say more than that. So it could be that the three-day journey means that it would take you three days to, to go from uh, corner to corner presenting this type of message. It could also be that it would take you three days to see the sights and the sounds of Nineveh. You know, you might would say, hey, uh, we're thinking about going to Disney World. We're going to stay uh, for a couple hours. You could, you could walk through the park in a couple of hours at Disney World, right? But somebody who's been there might say, no, 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 no. You're going to need at least four days at Disney World. Like, it's going to take you four days to get through everything, right? Like, it's not a four-day journey. Like, you could, you could lap it several times in a day probably, right? But to really experience Disney World, you're going to need several days of vacation. So it may be that that's really what's being talked about here, that it's not a literal walk around the city it's going to take you three days it's so massive it may simply be that to really we talked about some of the things that are there i mean you got hanging gardens and 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 all kinds of sights and sounds a big giant library a lot of things to see and do in nineveh it may simply be descriptive that man there is so much to do in nineveh it would take you three days to get through it it could also be that this is including uh, some of the suburb area around the city of nineveh so This shouldn't cause us too much concern either as to whether this story really happened or not. One thing that we didn't mention, some people critique the idea of the king of Nineveh. We know that Nineveh is a part of the Assyrian Empire. It would seem far more right to call him the king of Assyria. A lot of critics want to point to this, that there would not have been a king of Nineveh. This is a city within a larger empire. There's some precedent for understanding this in a way that does not contradict what Scripture has to say here. In 1 Kings 21.1, we see another example of a king being labeled as the king of a city when he's actually the king of a much bigger area. 1 Kings 21.1, now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now, who was Ahab king of? (coughs) Who's Ahab king of? It's not a trick question. It starts with an I. Israel, right? So normally we would see Ahab king of Israel. Here it says king of Samaria. That was his capital. That was his, that was his major city. So this is not un, unusual. It's not out of the norm for a king to be labeled the king of one of his major cities. So, this shouldn't cause us concern either that it's referred to as the king of Nineveh and not the king of Assyria. We see this in other parts of scripture. Um, The preservation of Jonah and the fish. This is maybe the the biggest and the hardest to to reconcile. How could a man survive in a fish for three days without the juices and and everything else killing him? Um, We could potentially look for scientific answers. I, I started to look into this and I was like, it's really not necessary. Um, there, there, are, there are some reports of, of men being swallow, swallowed by fish and surviving for periods of time. Now, I don't know that we have anything on record for this length of time, but there are scenarios where people have been swallowed by large uh, aquatic animals and, and survived from it. But honestly, this is no less miraculous or no more miraculous than what took place in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Like, they were thrown into a furnace where men who even got close to it were incinerated. And they're walking around hanging out with Jesus in there, right? So we can look, I could spend time researching this and try to give you some examples. Hey, here's how this could scientifically work. Great. But I'm content with saying, hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked around in a fiery furnace, and I believe that story really happened. So I'm okay with saying that Jonah lived in a whale or a fish for three days without dying too. I don't have to have examples in science that tell me how this could or couldn't have happened because I can't find anything in science that would tell me that three men could be thrown in a fiery furnace and walk around and not be – not even have the hair on their heads singed, right? So I'm fine if you want to look around and find stories of people that were swallowed by fish and lived and say, well, of course this story could happen because it's happened to previous people. Fine, but I'm content right where I at with saying, hey, I don't have to find scientific reason to believe this. I'm okay with God doing miracles because I've seen God do miracles in other passages of Scripture. Um, there's four chapters in this book, and I'm going to give you the four settings that we see in this book. Chapter 1 takes place in the sea. Chapter 1 is in the sea. Chapter 2 is in the belly of the fish. Chapter 1, the sea, chapter 2, the belly of the fish, chapter 3, the city of Nineveh, and then chapter 4, the outskirts of Nineveh. So We have four different chapters and four different settings for each chapter, the sea, the belly, the city, and the outskirts of Nineveh. Let me give you the outline of the book that we're going to kind of follow over the next few weeks. Number one, disobedience and danger, running from God. Number one in your notes, disobedience and danger, running from God. Number two, prayer and deliverance, running to God. Number three, preaching and repentance, running with God. And number four, complaining and depression, running ahead of God. So at times we see Jonah running from God and his disobedience, and it leads to his danger. Next, we see him praying in the belly of a fish for deliverance. He's running to God, running to his God of salvation. We see the preaching and the repentance in Nineveh running with God as Jonah chooses to align himself with the purposes of God. But then right after that, we see Jonah revert back to um, some poor poor attitude as he begins to complain and, and allows himself to fall into a depressed type state where he's running ahead of God and thinking that he knows better than God. The major theme of this book is God's mercy and compassion extend even to the heathen nations. God's mercy and compassion extend even to the heathen nations on condition of their repentance. Major theme of the book, God's mercy and compassion extend even to the heathen nations on condition of their repentance. Essentially, the Lord is a God of boundless compassion, not just for us. This is from an Israelite perspective, but also for them, the Gentiles. It's really a book of second chances, and we see second chances running throughout this book. Second chances for Noah, or not Noah, Jonah. um, Second chances for Nineveh. The book of second chances, we see God's compassion it ultimately answers the big question, is God concerned about anyone besides Israel? Is God concerned about anyone besides Israel. The Old Testament is an account of God's workings with Israel. And so if you're just reading through the Old Testament, I mean, you obviously get this picture that God loves Israel and that he's very compassionate and generous to Israel and he's looking out for Israel. But the question starts to surface, does God care about anybody but Israel? Is God anti every other nation? Has he invested everything in Israel? Does it all bank on Israel? Is there any room for for compassion with God that extends beyond Israel? And this book helps answer that question for us. God ultimately asks two questions to Jonah at the end of this book. And the whole book we're going to see helps us answer the questions. He asks the questions. Essentially, should you be angry right now, Jonah? Do you have a right to be angry with me right now? Because we see that Jonah's angry in chapter 4. We read that this morning. And then he asked the second question, should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not pity Nineveh? We're going to see why those rhetorical questions. The answer is, you have no right to be angry. And yes, I should pity Nineveh. We're going to see ultimately as we work through this book why those questions are answered that way. I think it's important to note that Jonah had already witnessed God's compassion on Israel by allowing the borders to equal David and Solomon's time. Remember, we said they're enjoying a time of prosperity, right? Jonah prophesied to Jeroboam II, God's hand's going to be upon you, the borders are going to extend. And they extend further than they ever had previously, except in the times of, of David and Solomon. So in his previous daddy's history and granddaddy's history, the the borders had been rescinding because of disobedience. And people had been invading and taking from Israel what was given to them by God. God steps in and says, I'm not going to blot out Israel. We're going to get these borders back under control. Jonah has witnessed God's compassion and provision towards a nation. Now, what did we point out about that nation that was important there in that passage? What was a little off that God would expand their borders they're still wicked right no repentance there's there's no element of of jonah coming and saying hey we need to change we need to get things right or god's going to judge us and then they get things right and then their borders expand god steps in because he's got a covenant with abraham he steps in and doesn't react to what israel has done he reacts because of who he is and says i'm going to do this because i'm faithful even though you guys aren't being faithful And he expands their borders. Jonah has already witnessed that. As we work through this story, we begin to realize that Jonah expects God's compassion throughout the story to be applied to himself. Jonah expects God to save him. He expects God to shade him, too. He expects God's compassion. He believes, I deserve it. I'm an Israelite. And you don't ever see Jonah question God about Why did you expand our borders when we're so wicked and sinful? I mean, it's obvious that we're not godly. You don't ever hear Jonah cry out and say, how dare you, God, allow us to prosper? How dare you save me when I'm in the ocean drowning? How dare you save me because I am wicked and I am evil and I ran from you. You never hear Jonah question God's compassion when it applies to Israel and when it applies to him specifically. He only begins to question God's compassion when it comes to them, the Gentiles. Jonah hopes that God will not be faithful in his compassion towards others. He feels that they do not deserve it. See, sometimes people want to say, well, Jonah ran from God when he told him to go to Nineveh because he's like us. He's scared to share the gospel with people. He's He's scared to go tell people about God. So so Jonah, in his fear, he ran away, just like Moses was scared at the burning bush when God said, I'm sending you back to Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him this and this and this. And Moses is like, whoa, not me. I'm not a good speaker. Whoa, don't send me. Send somebody else. Moses was scared, right? Like he was scared. Jonah's not scared. And we're going to see this in more detail when we get to chapter 4. Jonah doesn't say, God, I ran from you, and I'm sorry. I was just scared. I mean, this is a big city. It's the Assyrian Empire. No. Jonah says, I ran because I hate these people. I hate these people. I don't want you to save them. I don't want you to save these people. And I know what kind of God you are, and I know you're going to, and I don't like that. They don't deserve your compassion. He doesn't run away and get swallowed by a fish because he's a scaredy cat. The the, the teaching that comes out of this story is not, be, be less like Jonah. When God tells you to do something, go do it. Don't be scared. There's much deeper stuff that's being worked out in this story. This man's not compassionate. He doesn't love these people. He hates these people. He follows through with the task, but when it works, he's angry about it. And what's startling is he's not angry when God shows compassion to Israel with the lack of repentance. He's, he's, he's not angry at God for showing compassion to him. He's angry when God shows compassion to a group of people that get on their faces and repent, and God spares them for a time. Now, we can debate about how long-lasting their repentance was. Did they really turn to Yahweh? There's not a whole lot of detail here because some people want to say, well, they, they they repented, but they probably didn't really get things right with God. That may be the case. But what we do know is that God relented what he was going to do because of how they responded to his message. So for the time being, God does not do what he has every right to do. And Jonah's angry about it because he hates these people. The outcome of the story is very similar to some parables that we see in the New Testament, you'll remember the unforgiving servant that Jesus, Jesus talks about—the one who's forgiven a a large debt, right? Like has no way to pay for it. And God forgives him of the debt, or the king forgives him of the debt. He turns around and goes and demands payment from somebody that owes him money. And when when he has the opportunity to extend the same type of compassion, he demands that the man pay, or he'll throw him in prison. Same thing happens in the prodigal son story, right? The the older brother stays behind does what he's supposed to do, and then gets angry when the younger son comes back and is received in the arms of his father. Feels like he doesn't deserve it. Both parables both parables are teaching the same type of story that really happens in Jonah. There's an element of racism that extends here in the nation of Israel. They're not sympathetic and compassionate to the nations around them. Not only are they not compassionate, there's hatred towards the Gentiles. And what we've seen in our study of covenant is that a new covenant believer is radically transformed to become a global-minded, compassionate individual. And we said that that transition really starts to happen in the nation of Israel at Pentecost. So we're already, again, seeing how covenant ties in with an obscure Old Testament book. There's a message being taught here, a message that needs to be grasped by God's people that won't fully be realized until the Holy Spirit comes at the day of Pentecost. Some other running themes that we see throughout the book. So that major theme is that God's mercy and compassion extends to Gentiles. Some other running themes that we see is God's sovereignty. He remains in control through the entire story, and his plans are accomplished. You can't escape God, and you can't escape his plans, right? So he's sovereign, and we see his sovereignty at work throughout this story. We see God's holiness. Sin provokes him to anger. He will only tolerate wickedness for so long. There will come a point when he calls his son Jesus to himself in heaven and says, Go, go, for the sins of the earth have come before me, and it's time for you to go the second time and bring wrath. God will only tolerate sin for so long. He would have only tolerated it for so long with Nineveh, and he sent Jonah to communicate that to him. God sent Christ at Christmas, at the Advent time, to bring the message of repentance to us so that we can be better prepared, so that we can be rightly prepared for that second coming of wrath when he comes in the future. We also see God's compassion. He informs those who have angered him how to avoid judgment. This ought to serve as a strong reminder that somebody… Somebody informed you because they were sent to you to communicate the same thing. For those of us that claim to be believers here, somebody was sent to you to communicate the gospel. Somebody came to you with that message. and We can be eternally grateful for those individuals. These people would have perished immediately had Jonah not come. You would be dead in your sin today had somebody not come to you. Romans is very clear about that. We cannot repent. We cannot believe unless someone tells us. So you owe your eternity because God called somebody to speak with you about these type of issues. We also see throughout this book that no one is beyond God's reach. Even with their past history, God responds to repentance. God responds to repentance. All right, two application questions that we need to ask as we work through this book together. Question number one, am I faithfully doing what God has called me to do? Am I faithfully doing what God has called me to do? Even though that's not the major theme of this book, it, it is something that we have to ask because it's, it's something that we're clearly presented with. Jonah did not do what God asked him to do. He was not faithful here at the beginning of the story. And you could argue that he really wasn't faithful at the end of the story. That he did the outward action, but he was certainly not in line with God on the inside. Am I faithfully doing what God has called me to do? Am I running from what God has called me to do? The second question, though, and this is where I really think our focus has to be as we work through this book. Does my heart of compassion line up with God's concern for the nations? Does my heart of compassion line up with God's concern for the nation's? going to show you something really quick that i found really awesome acts chapter 10 this is after pentecost right acts chapter 10 there's a man by Cornelius by the name cornelius i think we've talked about him previously cornelius is a god fear the best that he knows how um gets a vision to go send for who to come communicate the gospel to him god says go get who Anybody remember? Peter. Okay, so Peter's supposed to come communicate to this Gentile group who Christ is. Now, Peter's going to be reluctant to do that, right? Because Peter's a Jew, and we see other elements where Peter, even though he's saved, he's still got Jewish blood running through him. And he isn't fully bought into this Gentile idea. Paul has to call him out on it at one point. So Peter's a little reluctant to to go communicate to the Gentiles. So God has to to send a vision to him to prep him for this. And that's when the sheet comes down and God communicates everything's clean. You're gonna have to go tell the Gentiles about the gospel. What's interesting to me? See if I can find it to read it to you. Um, Acts chapter 10, verse 5. Now, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, why is that interesting? Where's Peter at? Joppa. Where did Jonah set sail from? Joppa. Both men had a decision to make about whether they were going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Jonah set sail from Joppa and and was attempting to go as far as he could by water at the known time. In the known world, he attempted to go as far as he could from the direction that God wanted him to go. And he made that decision at Joppa. He said, I'm not interested. And taking the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm interested in keeping it right here with me. Peter's residing at Joppa. And these men come to Peter. And they say, will you come with us? Will you come communicate to us what we need to know? And Peter makes the decision differently than Jonah makes it. I think that's significant. Significant is we're talking about covenant and, and covenants transcending each other and, and the new covenant being instituted at Pentecost, that a decision has to be made once again at Joppa. Will Peter be like Jonah? Will he set sail and run from the idea of God's compassion extending to the nations? Or will Peter yield to it? Will Peter yield to it and say, you know what, I'll go? be interesting to note what would have happened to Peter had he set sail from Joppa. Right? Like we know what happened to Jonah. And I wonder if Peter even put the two together because he would have been familiar with this story. I wonder if it even resonated with him that, hey, there's a man who ran from God right where I'm at. I've got a decision to make. I need to make the right decision. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility Who's the both there? The Gentiles and the Jews, right? Christ came. We celebrate his coming here at Christmas time. Christ came to make one man. He came to break down the dividing walls of hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. That wall started to be broken down with, with accounts like Jonah. God began to work that into the people's hearts, even with this story. Now, we're in a position where we're Gentiles, right? So, you know, we can sit back and say, that's right, you better love us. Like, we're part of this thing, too. But there's there's interpretation that happens when we study Scripture, right? And then there's application. So, the interpretation for this passage, for this this book that we're going to see, is that the Israelites needed to understand that God's compassion extended to the nations. That's us. Now, the application for us may be different than that because we're on the outside previously looking in. And now we've been grafted in, the New Testament says. I think we have the responsibility to figure out where where do we lack in compassion in this story. And as as I was thinking through this, you know, I got to thinking, I'm not so sure that we're not the opposite of this. Meaning... Sometimes I think I could generate more response if I were to tell you, "Hey, uh, next summer we're we're planning a mission trip, and and we're going to Uganda, and we're going to be there for two weeks, and it's going to cost you X amount of dollars, and we're going to go into some difficult areas, and we're going to communicate the gospel with people that have that have not heard about Jesus, specifically children that um that don't have Christian parents to invest in them, and so we're going to go take the gospel." next summer for two weeks to Uganda, and it's going to cost you $2,500, and you're going to have to take two weeks off of of work to do it. Part of me feels like I could get a greater response in that type of thing than to say, hey, next summer for a couple of days, we're going to invest in children here in Sonoy with our summer fund program, and it's not going to cost you a dime, but you will need to take off work for three days. You see, a lot of times when we do this kind of stuff, the excuse is, I got to work. I'm sorry. Like, I can't I can't be there for that. And I know you can't just drop everything and take off work every time we're trying to do outreach here in Sonoy. But sometimes I feel like we're way more apt to talk about the nations and potentially want to go to the nations. And we're far more hesitant to be active here in our area. So Jonah says, "Eh, I'm staying here. I'm not going there. Sometimes I feel like we're saying, I'll go there. Don't ask me to go here, though, because I'm real hesitant about this. I want to challenge you as we're working through this book. Where do you lack compassion? If you lack compassion for the nations, then I want to call you to compassion to the nations. But I don't want you to sit tight and say, man, I've got a heart for the nations. Like, I'm all about this. Like, tell me where to go, and I'm going on the mission field. If there's a lack of compassion for people here. The question we've got to ask ourselves is, does our heart of compassion line up with God's? Because when he says nations, he means all nations, including this nation. Does our heart of compassion line up? And and, and does it line up in the sense that are we willing to serve within this church? Because I highlighted to you last week, the things that we signed up for, there's a glaring weakness in the things that we really need people signed up for to serve in this church. There's a glaring absence in the area of outreach on those areas where you can sign up. I told you we got the coffee covered, right? But we are lacking severely in people that want to say, hey, I'll be responsible for the outreach in this area. I want to challenge you with that as we work through this book. Where is your compassion off? Because I'm going to say that all of us are compassions off somewhere. Some of us need to be ignited with compassion for the nation's. Some of us need to be ignited for compassion for Sinoy, And I'm going to trust that you figure out which one you are, and you allow God's word to shape you in the coming weeks in that area. Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that you sent a greater Jonah to us 2,000 years ago, and I'm thankful that we can celebrate his coming during this Christmas season. Father, we're thankful for Christ this morning. We're thankful that he had compassion that far exceeded anything that Jonah ever felt. God, I'm thankful that you are a God who extends his mercy, mercy and compassion to Jews and Gentiles. God, I'm thankful that when you make a covenant, you keep the covenant, whether we're faithful or not. God, I'm thankful that every day when I sin and rebel against you, that your covenant stands because of Christ's perfection. Father, I'm thankful that you give me the Holy Spirit to draw me to conviction and repentance each day. God, I pray that you would continue that work in me because if left to myself, I would wander from you the first chance that I got. Father, I pray that you would break our hearts for the nations. God, I pray that we would understand that you desire to extend your mercy to all peoples all tribes, all tongues, God, I pray that our church would be about that business. God, I pray that you would correct us where we're flawed. If we're like Jonah and we're unsensitive to the needs of other races, God, if there's there's any element of racism that exists in our church, Father, I pray that you would weed that out immediately. God, I'm trusting that since I have not picked up on that, that, that it doesn't exist in the way that it existed in such an ugly form in jonah but god if it's there i pray that you would reveal that and that you would break that father i do pray that you would break us for the nations out of our complacency and father if we need to be broken for our town first then father i'm praying that that would happen as well god we know that you were Adamant about calling Jonah to Nineveh because he was already being faithful to prophesy to Israel. So God, I pray that we would not that we would not assume that you would call us to go if we're not going to be faithful to communicate here. So God, I pray that each individual in our church would assess themselves and ask these hard questions as we work through this book. God, we don't want to run from you and what you desire for us. And God, we don't want to just fulfill tasks that you give us because we're being told to do something. God, we want our inside to line up with our outward actions. So God, I pray that you would change our hearts because we know that that will naturally result in our outward actions being changed as well. Father, as we Begin another week, I pray that we would be mindful of those that we come in contact with. We would share the gospel faithfully. God, as we come together next week and we begin to give opportunities for our church to share these stories and these accounts, Father, I pray that it would not be silent, that we would have to cut the time off as we're being faithful to carry your message the way that you called us. We have these things in Jesus' name.